Welcome to Dentists, Puns, and Money. I'm your host, Sean Terrell. My guest on today's show is Dr. Travis Campbell. One of the pain points Dr. Travis experienced early in his career was dealing with dental insurance. Even worse, he struggled to find helpful resources on that topic, so he became the resource. In 2021, Dr. Campbell wrote a book called Understanding Dental Insurance. Its purpose is to help fellow dentists and their staffs navigate the insurance industry. And as a reminder, our affiliated firm, Dentist Exit Planning, helps dentists on their journey toward financial independence. If you are a dentist interested in finding your eventual exit from active practice, we are here to help, whether you're three months or 30 years away. To schedule an initial consultation with us, visit DentistExit.com, click Schedule Meeting at the top right corner of the main page, and then select Discovery Meeting. And with that introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with the dental insurance guy, Dr. Travis Campbell. All right, Dr. Travis Campbell, welcome to Dentist Puns and Money. I'm excited to have this discussion, hear a little bit more about your experience, and have you share it with our audience. Thank you for joining us. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. So my favorite place to start is just with some background for the audience on your journey. Could you share a little bit about who you are and how you have reached this current point of your dental career? So I'm weird, but then again, I guess most of us are that I've wanted to be a dentist since before I can remember. Um, graduated 13 years ago, um, opened an office from scratch immediately after graduation, which don't necessarily recommend anybody do does. <laughs> and over the subsequent years, since I was never trained to run a business, I made every failure that I think a dentist could make running an office. The big difference is I just learned how to, you know, find solutions to all the mistakes that I could create. And so I wrote a book on practice management in 2018, which pretty much highlights all the failures I had and what to do about them. And then I wrote another textbook on how to understand dental insurance uh, just last year. I run two offices now. I speak a lot at conferences, mostly about dental insurance, but a little bit about practice management. And I used to have some burnout issues years ago, but the more I learn about dentistry now and the business side and the profit side and just how to make life more fun, uh, the more I've enjoyed dentistry. So that's where I am today. So you say you made about every failure you can make. And without mm -hmm. recapping the entire book, could you highlight uh, a few of the things that you made as mistakes that maybe might be beneficial for a younger dentist to try to avoid? Sure. First is I have an entire chapter on this one. I hired an office manager who wasn't actually an office manager. You know, in dentistry, we tend to have teams of four to five people. And yet every other industry, an office manager requires six people underneath them to justify having somebody that actually manages. So a lot of times what happens is we've got some great employees, they're just given the wrong titles. And with the wrong titles come the wrong salary expectations. And so that was probably my first major mistake. I didn't understand how to talk to patients, how to communicate with them, you know, both in terms of marketing, in terms of treatment acceptance, in terms of just treating people like human beings. You know, dental school teaches us well on how to do the clinical side, but it doesn't usually teach us well on how to, you know, communicate with others. So that was a, a major thing for me. I'm way overspent in terms of 
equipment and supplies and construction and all these things. So when we moved to a second office, we had oh, about 60% more space, but our construction costs were only about 20% higher and our equipment costs were actually about the same as the first office. So we were able to create and equip more space with a much smaller budget, but I got everything I wanted and the design is far more efficient, far more effective. That's, I mean, several of the things. I mean, I treated team members wrong. I've treated patients wrong. I've looked at the business in a wrong way. I've bought things I should never have bought. I misunderstood how the IRS and loans work. So there was a time period at which, you know, I really wasn't making almost anything because I was having to pay back a bunch of loans that, oh, yes, you actually do pay taxes on these. So that's just a nutshell, some of the major failures. And the name of that book that you outlined most of those failures was titled what? The Practice Whisperer. The Practice Whisperer. Okay. And you highlight an interesting point. And, you know, as someone who is not a dentist, I'm often trying to be sympathetic to everything that you guys are trying to be good at besides clinical dentistry. To your point, you guys are trained in dental school, how to practice clinical dentistry, but there's just so many other various areas outside of uh, dentistry that you guys have to be good at, especially if you own your own practice. And, you know, sort of that journey to learn and be sort of a jack of all trades within the business of dentistry. I guess this is really broad, but how did you approach that? I mean, you, you talk about all these mistakes that you made. Um, was it just constant trial and error? It probably took some level of self-awareness to recognize that, hey, this is, you know, I, I messed this up and, oh, I messed this up over here now too. I guess in terms of just a growth mindset, was that the key for you to try to be okay with making mistakes and figuring out a way to do better in the future? That was some of it. I mean, I thankfully had a couple of great employees that had worked in dental offices for a while, and they took a while, but they beat into me the answers that I was doing things wrong, um, which they were right. I had a great CPA who beat into me that I was doing things wrong, and he was he's always been right. It just take, took me a while to realize it. And I've spent over half a million dollars on coaches and consultants, some of which were very effective and some of which were not. And most of the reason for not was me. So I always talk to dentists now that if they're looking at hiring a consultant, don't hire one unless you are ready to make a major change. Because the biggest reason any of the consultants in the past I paid didn't work out is because I was expecting them to make the change in my office instead of taking the information they would give me and actually make the change myself. So you weren't coachable enough yourself? Correct. Interesting observation. And that probably led to something you touched on, I think, in the, in the very beginning, which was some level of burnout that it sounds like you experienced it at some point of your career. Absolutely. I was, and I talk about this in the book too, but there was a point in my life where I had, you know, Heartland's letter sitting on my desk every day going, should I sell? Should I not? You know, things like that. And it was about four or five years out. So it didn't take me long to hit that burnout point. But, you know, we deal with patients all the time as an example that, you know, say, well, I hate going to the dentist. So I had to learn what they were actually telling me. They weren't telling me they hated me. They were telling me they hated dentistry. But more so what they were telling me is they hated dentistry, but they liked me so much that it got them over their anxiety of the dentistry. And so now when I have people tell me I hate dentistry, it's actually a compliment 
they like me so much. Despite all that, despite the poor experience and the pain that they've made me experience emotionally and physically in the past, you're a, you're enough of a, of a joy in the chair that they, they keep coming back. Yeah. Now, how true that is, I don't know. It's sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but it makes me feel a whole lot better. And most patients have told me, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Is I, I don't like what you do, but I like you enough that I'll let you do it. It's a huge mind shift switch. Um, and it made it, you know, it made a lot more fun. And now I I love my patients that are anxious, partially because I can make a change in their mentality over the years and how they see dentistry, but also you know, we as dentists are weird in healthcare. Everywhere else in healthcare, surgeons will knock you out to do anything they're going to do. And yet we're the only surgeon that wants to think that we should be doing surgery with patients who are awake. The medical profession probably looks at us and laughs and goes, y'all are nuts. So my sedation patients are awesome because they sleep through it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Interesting perspective. What's most topical to chat with you about today is sort of another big problem that you experienced within the dental industry. And for you and your practice itself was trying to understand dental insurance. Maybe just really broadly speaking, what led to this realization? Is there Was there a specific case that you were working on or was it just death by a thousand paper cuts, straw that broke the camel's back that you just constantly had so much pain around dental insurance? and how to be reimbursed properly for the care that you were providing that you eventually decided to solve the problem. It's definitely death by a thousand cuts. I will say if you had asked me 10 years ago, if I'd ever write a book, I'd say absolutely not. If you asked me 10 years ago, if I'd ever do public speaking, I would have given you even more expletives of absolutely not. I am very much an introvert naturally. And so being on stage was, you know, like most of us, the worst thing possible I could imagine. But it came down to every time we had issues with insurance, I tried to go look for solutions because I'm not one that accepts no for an answer. I want reasons. I want lies. And I could never find, in most cases, good information. So I had to go look it up, you know, look it up in insurance contracts or state laws or, you know, everything else that's out there that most of us don't tend to read the source material. And a lot of it I had to come up with myself. So some of it was trial and error. Some of it was just piecing together different laws in different areas. And that's what I enjoy teaching people because I wish somebody had given it to me when I was first out because it would have made a major difference. I mean, the majority of the reason we are where we are now and so successful in our office is not because I do exponentially more work than any other dentist out there. It's that I actually get paid effectively, even though I'm in network with everyone. I get paid effectively for the work that we do. And it took years to find it all, but now it's helped tremendously. And so that's what my book last year was all about is, you know, how to understand the insurance industry in a way that the office can use to make the process easier, more efficient, make more money, be able to collect more, be able to avoid denials. And it makes a massive difference. At least it has for us. And the title of that second book that you wrote in 2021 was what related to insurance? Understanding Dental Insurance. Got it. I want to dive deeper there. And before I do, I'm curious, and if you don't know the answer to this, I hate to put you on the spot, but what is the history of dental insurance? And before you answer that, just for context, 
you know, I'm 44 and my dad worked for the same company for like 40 years. And I remember when we were younger, we would just go to the dentist, he would get the bill and he would take it to the company and they would pay the dental bill. At some point, bigger companies or corporations started outsourcing that, I guess. So that was like maybe a self-insurance example for lack of a better explanation. But at some point that became transferred to a different third-party insurance company and you paid for it more out of pocket. There was through your paycheck deduction or whatever it was. So sort of with those is sort of a couple backdrops. What is your understanding? Or maybe you could give an explanation on sort of the background there. So what you describe is usually called direct reimbursement is, you know, the patient pays and then something reimburses them or somebody reimburses directly just cost to cost. There's no other restrictions or anything else other than there's probably a maximum amount that the employee would cover. But dental insurance as a entity, you know, a third-party administrator has been around for 70 years and it started quite a while ago before both of us were born, or at least you don't look that old. But um, it started off nice. I mean, it started off as a way that the patient could have extra funds to be able to spend on things that, you know, let's all be honest, patients don't just save for dentistry in most cases. We're not top of mind. It's not like the new car, the new TV, or the the vacation that our patients want to take. It's a necessity. And most of the times in our life, humans don't tend to save money for necessities. They save money for wants. Relate to that in my work. Yeah. And many times dentistry is not a want. So, you know, it helped to get your name out there. It helped to make it a little bit easier for the patient. But it's, you know, over the last 70 years has become the problem in itself. Reimbursements drop and maximums don't go up and premiums continue to rise. And in response to you know, financial pressures from stockholders and also in response to some dentists out there that have been fraudulently billing the necessity for documentation, the necessity for proving what we did keeps increasing so that insurance is, yeah, trying to save some money, but also trying to avoid people lying to them. You know, it's become a much bigger deal of having to understand the entire process. Having to understand what the insurance company is actually looking for in claims so that you know how to provide it to them so that you can get paid for what you did. Um, It's understanding the contracts that we sign because sadly enough, and I was one of them at the beginning of my career, I would just sign on a dotted paper these like 26 page contracts. I, I had no idea what was in the contract other than I knew I was signing a fee schedule. That's what I knew. But some of the rules that are in there are far worse than the actual fee discount. And then understanding, you know, what laws have come across because of challenges with the insurance industry. So, you know, 2010 to or 2000 to 2010, there's a whole set of laws around insurance was trying to cap fees for procedures they weren't paying for. And so many states created laws to prevent insurance companies from being able to set a fee for something that was not covered. And You know, there's a 10-year period where over 30 states did that. And then there was a time period where it kind of stopped. And in recent years, in the last three years, there's been a new state that's been added to that list as well. So now we've got 42 states that have non-covered service laws. But if you don't know what non-covered service means or don't know what the law means, a lot of people just don't understand it and still go by the EOB or the letter that they get from insurance saying how much they're paying. But in our experience... We get an EOB that's incorrect almost every day. 
you know, the computers aren't perfect. The systems aren't designed for these laws. And sometimes people make mistakes, even on the insurance company side. And so we've got to know more about what we're doing when dealing with claims and insurance and EOBs in order to not get ruined by the errors. What are the, this is again, really broad, but what are the, the big issues, if you could sort of pare it down that most dentists and their staff don't understand or get wrong about dealing with dental insurance? Well, there's myths I break all the time. So myths like EOBs are always correct. I mean, like I said, it, and team members usually start nodding if I'm, they're ever in the audience with this one. They go, yeah, we see wrong EOBs all the time. Getting denials. And I, I see, I, I get a letter from a dentist or a message from a dentist almost every day on claims that they sent out. And they're like, look, it's a legitimate service. I look at it and go, yep, it's a legitimate service. I see what you did. And they're like, but we still got denied. I look at their documentation, I'm like, well, yes, as a dentist, I understand why the service was done. And I kind of agree that it was necessary and everything else. But if you look at it from a reviewer's point of view, they've just got a checklist. And what you submitted does not match what their checklist is. And that's why you got denied, not because the service was unnecessary, but because the documentation for it didn't match the requirements for reimbursement. And so that's a big one is people don't understand a majority of their denials is because of the information they're sending out. And in most cases, you know, the dentists and the teams think, well, this is great information until they actually see what great information means. And then they're like, oh, that's different. I'm like, yeah, because it's changed over the decades. 50 years ago, you could just say, you did a crown on this tooth, send no x-rays send almost no narrative and you get paid for it. Now, you have to send x-rays and pictures and great narratives and you know everything else. Well, does it stink? Yes, absolutely. But it's one of those things I try to talk to people about. You know, somebody's got to change. It's either us or the insurance company. And I don't know about anybody else, but even me, I really have very limited ways to get the insurance company to change their process. <laughs> so it's much easier to fix our process. And in most cases, it's not something that takes exponentially longer. You know, a couple extra photos, an x-ray at the right time, filling out the narrative might take me an extra minute or two per large procedure, but it will save my team an hour or two in terms of having to fight that claim. So within that, I'm guessing the insurance companies aren't going to go out of their way to tell you how to do it a little bit better to give them a little bit more of what they need to approve the claim. They're just going to reject it. Oh, absolutely not. They would never give you that. Well, never. Most of the time, they are not allowed to give you that information and not allowed being the people that you're talking to. Right. You know, if the insurance company knew that you were giving them the exact list of how to get paid, they get fired. I mean, because that's internal information. But I give it out all the time, not because I've ever worked with any of them. I don't have any NDAs. I don't have any of that internal information. I've just figured it out through looking at why they deny things and when they accept them later. And so I just teach people that. But no, I mean, and in most cases, and that's the challenge with EOBs, you know, when we get them back, we get these bogus messages and people are like, I have no idea what the, how they came up with this. And it's because they don't understand that the reviewers didn't write them a message. The reviewers picked from a list of options that they have to respond with. And in many cases, that list of options is very vague and generic. And so they didn't have any other way to communicate with them. So for instance, you know, a lot of times an insurance company may ask for an x-ray of a buildup 
Well, that's only because that's the only way that's written in their software to respond back. You don't need an x-ray. I've never sent an x-ray of a buildup. I do send a photo of a buildup, and that always satisfies them. What they really want is the evidence that it was done. They don't need what they exactly asked for. And so it's things like that of understanding why it happens and understanding what they're looking for so you can provide it. And do I want to make the insurance company's job easier? No, not really. But I want to make my team's job easier and being able to get money for what we did and get it quicker. And so if I can just change one little thing that takes a few extra seconds, I get paid more often and I get paid faster. Yeah. So what's been the, uh, the outcome or the uh, transformation of your practice by figuring this stuff out? I mean, in the last five years, we've almost doubled the practice and I still work four days a week. Well, I mean, I have an associate now that works two days and I work two days, but we still as a total are working like one dentist. And yet, you know, we're doing well over 2.5 million in collections, which you know, the average office is something like 750. And again, it's not because I'm on roller skates or anything else. It's <laughs> more and more efficient at you know, processing patients, but we're also more efficient at getting paid and we're coding things correctly so that we're actually getting paid for everything we're doing. You know, dentists are pretty bad at, and I was in the past, and my team probably will tell you I still am, at giving away services. I mean, I'm a dentist. I just like helping people. I like doing what I do. And getting paid is not always top of mind. And yet, if we're running a business, it should be. And if we're going to work, we've got to keep in mind that, yes, we should be there primarily to help people. But a very close second is the fact we're working because it's a job. And we need income to support our families. And more importantly, as a dentist, we need income to support our teams. You know, whether they're our team or not, you know, whether we're an associate or an owner, the other people we work with rely on us for their take-home paychecks too. And so that's, it, it's a great little burden, but it's also a burden to realize that, you know, it's not just us we're caring about. It's everyone we work with. And so you mentioned your team, and I think that's a nice transition to you know, most dentists aren't actually dealing with the insurance companies directly themselves. So I would assume a lot of this is, is figuring out how to train the team correctly to accomplish these tasks and work with the insurance companies, the teams directly themselves. Correct. And of course, that's why the, the textbook is designed to start to finish understand insurance like you know nothing about dentistry. And that was the way it was designed. So you could hand it to somebody and go, read this. And you'll be better than 99% of people out there that are billing. But some of the dichotomy issues are the front team or a lot of people are outsourcing insurance now. Well, your outsourced company or your front team can only be as good with claims as the documentation that's coming from the clinic, from the dentist. And so both, I mean, everybody on the team kind of needs to know this information because the clinician needs to know what information must be gathered in order for the administration team to actually process the claim. Because if you don't get the information on the clinic side, you're missing half of what is necessary for claims. And that's why a lot of officers are having most of their errors or problems is they just don't understand that it's not just a, well, here's what we did, you should pay us. You know, unfortunately, we've got to prove a little bit about what we did. Yeah, it was uh, it's a couple different places I could, I could go there. But I guess the question that's jumping out for me is, and this is really anecdotal and really general, but 
based on your experience, both personally and now all the, the dentists that you've dealt with throughout writing the book and, and helping them and consulting and coaching them on how to do better, what's being left on the table on average? I would say, and I actually said this at a conference I ran yesterday, like this weekend, most offices could easily increase their collections by 15 to 20% and not do a single additional restoration or procedure. But just understand how to bill it better, understand how to avoid denials, understand how to avoid, understand coding. So if we bill correctly, we'll get paid more doing the same stuff. And that doesn't even deal with the fact that you could negotiate your fees higher in different ways. And because most people mistake what negotiations are nowadays, they're not what they used to be. And that could raise it even more. Just purely in process, 15 to 20% increase. And that's what's fun is what I talk about can make an instant impact. And so if I've heard kind of what you said, I want to make sure I've heard it correctly. It's not necessarily that, you know, because everyone has bad experiences in insurance companies, not just dental insurance companies, insurance companies in, in a, a bunch of different areas. It doesn't have a very good reputation. This is not, yes. and I could give you some of my own personal examples, but this is not insurance companies necessarily being directly evil and not paying legitimate claims this is this they have slowly uh raised the bar in terms of the documentation that they need or will uh, accept to pay a claim and they're not going out of their way to be helpful to tell tennis what that information is directly absolutely but you've got it okay so there's a, there's a counter argument and I don't know how prevalent this is out there, but there's the fee for service dentist that has just decided that like, I'm done with insurance. I'm just going to bill and patients are going to pay me directly. I'm curious on your thoughts on, on going that direction with dealing with insurance companies. So ever since insurance started, uh, well, maybe not immediately, but very close after 60 years ago, now, let's say there has been a movement within dentists to drop insurance almost as a whole. You know, let's all drop insurance. It's always been there, but it's always been very small. Less than 1% of dentists have ever talked about it. In the recent last couple of years, I've seen that movement grow exponentially larger. Now, it may still only be a couple of percent, but it's much larger than it's ever been. The challenge is a lot of dentists don't want to accept the fact that being on a network being fee-for-service is completely different from being a network. A dentist or a patient is willing to pay more money has higher expectations. You know, if you are an average dentist, just like everybody else around you, then patients aren't going to see the reason to spend more money coming to see you. And that's one of the problems with fee-for-service. So I've seen lots of great dentists who have been very successful fee-for-service. Some of them know why they're successful. Many of them don't know why they're successful. In most cases, they're better communicators with patients. In most cases, they have a much better team. In many cases, they use higher quality equipment, supplies. Their office has a different ambiance, you know, a different atmosphere. In order to attract the people who are willing to spend more money, they have to see and feel that it's worth it. Versus there's other dentists, many of us, like myself, who... I'm not the best communicator in the world from a patient point of view, or more so from a relationship building point of view. I mean, I love dentistry. I love talking to people one-on-one -on -one about dentistry, but I don't really necessarily get a lot out of the small talk side. 
And that's huge from a relationship building fee-for-service platform. But for me, it drains my energy to have to you know, work that hard at it. So for me, I get more fulfillment out of just focusing more on the dental and less on the relationship, which means I will always be in network because it's it just suits my, you know, my personality. I have seen dentists who have not accepted the fact that that's not them, who have gone fee-for-service and gone bankrupt. I've seen one dentist who bought an office from a fee-for-service dentist who was amazing. And he came in and had the almost complete opposite personality. And he ran the office into the ground in less than 12 months. An office that had been around for 20 plus years and was doing amazing. I mean, the numbers were awesome. And he ruined it purely because of personality. And so we've got to accept the fact that, you know, there's lots of other things, reasons why patients will or will not come see us and will or will not pay certain levels of amount of money. And the more we accept insurance, the more it's acceptable and affordable to the patient, the less we accept it and go towards the fee-for-service route, the more we have to realize we have to up our own game. We have to up the bar so the patient's willing to pay that. No, it's just what I'm hearing from you is it's, it's not just as simple as deciding that you don't want to deal with insurance anymore one day and going fee-for-service. There's a lot of other things that you have to have along with that to, to make sure that it's going to work. And it's also about knowing who you really are as a dentist and what's sort of in your wheelhouse and what your strong suit is versus what it's not. Absolutely. And the other thing, one of the other myths I talk about a lot is the biggest complaint I see come from dentists that say, I'm just going to drop network is not the fees. Although yes, the fees are a problem. I mean, if you're going to drop network because of fees and fees alone, great, do it. But I see a lot of them say they're going to drop networks because of the rules or the regulations or the restrictions or the fact that they're getting denials. And what I have to keep showing people is when an insurance reviewer looks at your claim, in most cases, they have no idea whether you're in or out of network. So dropping the network is not going to change your denial issue. And most of the rules that we think are a big problem are only a problem because we don't actually know the workarounds for them, or we don't actually know that half the things that the insurance companies are trying to tell us they can't actually do. And so, you know, some of the restrictions that we think are placed on us aren't actually restrictions. And if you know that up front, then you can actually work within the, the system, the framework, without having all the challenges. But if you drop the framework without realizing where the original challenges are coming from, you're still going to have the challenges. And so you didn't solve the problem. One thing that I've probably gone too long without asking is, okay, so insurance doesn't pay a claim or it doesn't pay what you thought it was going to pay or explain to the patient. So the options there basically are what twofold? Well, they're threefold. You can appeal to the insurance company, but if that doesn't work or they don't, they still don't approve it, then the dentist either has the, the option to eat it or bill the patient for the difference. And we know the consequences of eating it or just absorbing that cost. Uh, what are the consequences on the patient side of things if the patient receives a bill for a lot more money than they thought they were going to pay out of pocket for a procedure they had done? Typically, the consequence is a very upset patient. And I mean, can we really blame them? You know, we say we're going to do something and it's going to cost $200. And they prepare for that. Most of our patients are on monthly budgets. I mean, they have to kind of rearrange their expenses. And then we come back later and go, oh, you know, insurance just didn't pay it or, you know, the estimate was off. 
you want another 200. And they're like, well, wait a minute, you told me it was only 200. Now you're doubling it. A, I don't have the money for it. B, that sounds wrong. C, that sounds like a bait and switch. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can come with it. And in a lot of cases, the patient's right. And so, I mean, one of the things I teach people to try to do is, and it's a rule within the office, if we aren't 99% certain that insurance is going to reimburse what we're saying it's going to reimburse, we drop that number until we are. I mean, there are some questions because insurance doesn't tell us to the penny what's going to get paid. I mean, if they did, our life would be so much easier. They just don't do that. And so we have to take a few educated guesses. And when I teach people, and our team goes by this, is if we're having to guess, the answer is no. If we're having to guess whether insurance will pay something, it's zero. Because giving patients money back later is really simple. It's not hard to track down a patient and go, by the way, you got a credit. Would you like that credit back? Like, yeah. But you call the patient and go, by the way, you got a balance. Would you like to pay that balance? And you're like, and then you hear the, the dead tone. You're like, wait, did you just take up on me? Yeah. So it, it's realizing a lot of the problem is preempting the issue. Managing expectations. Absolutely. And so if we create our estimates better with the idea that if there's an unknown, the unknown means zero reimbursement, then we solve a lot of the collections problems later. I mean, we went years ago, we had, oh, I, don't, I almost don't even want to admit it, but we had like 26 pages of accounts receivable that was overdue. Now, every time I print it off, it might be a page long. That's 30, 60, 90? Yeah. All on one page? A huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's massive. You know, that's the big issue is... You know, I hear offices all the time that say they have less than 99.9% collection. I'm like, why? Well, I get why. I, I was there. But it's, it's sad to see. But some of the solutions are really easy. You know, estimate correctly. You know, ask patients to pay up front as opposed to after the service. You know, several things like, you know, every other industry in the world does. You can't buy a plane ticket without paying for it first. You know, you pay for your groceries after you get them, but you can't leave the store without paying for them. You know, or oh, without running. Track you down. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> the police track you down afterwards. So, but in many ways, offices are just, you know, providing care to patients and then letting them walk out. And it's because of a system problem. It's not because, well, I mean, occasionally patients may be actually, you know, frauds and deadbeats and cons. But if you have the right systems in the office, you avoid all of that. It's interesting to see, take an office that, you know, has like 89% collections and bump them up to 99 and see the huge budgetary difference that makes. And they didn't do any new dentistry. They just actually collected for what they did accomplish. And to put a dollar amount on that, that's uh, those are six-figure dollar amounts. <laughs> yes, they can be. So you, you have the book. I'm interested in the uh, the ongoing, because when you write a book, and I've written a book, uh, you, you sort of like, that's a marker in time. Things evolve over time. But this this community that you've built as well is is what I would think is a way to to stay up to date and to, to help keep people educated on the fluidity of the changing landscape of the insurance industry. If you, as we start to sort of wrap things up, if you would share a little bit about that uh, group that you've created for other dentists to be involved in. So I'm now known as the dental insurance guy, just because I like insurance. I'm one of the only ones who ever talks about it or semi, I'm weird. I enjoy discussing insurance. So we created a website, dentalinsuranceguy.com. And what it is, is like the book, like you said, is a static in time education. But 
things shift and it can't answer every question. I mean, it's 350 pages, but it, I mean, there's only so much you can stick in there. So the website is just a membership platform, super inexpensive, and it's got some CE courses. It's got a link to all the state laws that, by the way, the only other source I've ever found for that is over 10 years old and has not been updated. So that's, you know, staying up to date. You know, I'm posting articles in there um, and newsletters every month. You know, we've got a live Q&A session. The next one's coming up next week that I just answered any questions of anybody that wants to come on to those sessions and talk about either EOBs or challenges or system problems, you know, anything to do with insurance. There's a helpline. So if somebody's got a any of those issues, they can just message through the website and we'll get them an answer, you know, more live or more on demand, I guess. I mean, there's so many things that the website provides that it's designed to be dynamic with the changes in the industry and the changes in our office and the day-to-day challenges that we're dealing with. So I'm really proud of it. It's a lot of fun. Again, I'm probably one of the only weird people who could call dental insurance fun, but I do. I just love the fact that I can help people do things that I wish somebody was there to help me with years ago. Well, and the industry needs someone like you that will help them with this and that will help people with this and that is interested and passionate about it. So to each their own, I think it's great. Uh, Anything that we haven't hit on today that uh, you think would be important to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, the one thing that's interesting is, at least me, I don't talk to my team enough about, you know, how their day-to-day life is going and how each system is going. So I've heard a lot of dentists, it's really funny at conferences. I've heard dentists go, you know, insurance or this one thing is a problem, but it's not a very big problem. And their teams behind them are going, what are you talking about? This is like the biggest headache we have. It's because we never ask them and we never have to deal with it. We just, you know, we like sitting in our operatories and doing our thing, which is what we were trained to do and which we love. But it's always nice to get to the team occasionally and go, okay, what is your biggest challenge? What can we solve? There was a book years ago called Hardwiring Excellence. And that's one of the things out of the book. I mean, it was written for hospitals, but it applies to dentistry really well. As he talked about at one point, you know, the nursing department was not doing so great and had a lot of turnover and things. And he went to them and said, what's your biggest problem? And they're like, it's the printer. It's always breaking down. It's super slow. We've got all these things that we have to do that we have to print off. And yet our biggest challenge day to day is the printer. The, the CEOs or you know, executive is looking and going, we run a multi hundred million dollar office and your challenge is a $3,000 printer. He's like done. The printer was installed two days later. The team loved him, but efficiency also went up. And he's like, look, all I had to do is buy a new printer and that fixed the problem. But if he didn't ask, if he hadn't gone to them and, you know, just talked to them, he'd never know. It's just, it's interesting. You know, there's so many things I've learned, like I said, usually from other people um, on the practice management side, but the insurance side, I just didn't find a lot of options. So that's the thing I, I get people to think about is go talk to your teams, go figure out what's their biggest challenge, listen to them, and then go find a solution for what they're telling you is the issue. And you generate a lot of loyalty but then you have a much better run business. But you have to ask. And as we wrap things up here, I'm going to ask you, you know, the name of the podcast is Dentist Puns and Money. Do you have a, a dentist joke, a dentist pun that, that you would like to share? Oh, you know, was, I probably that was a, should. It was a cheesy segue. That's why I was giving you time to think about it. 
And if it's if not, we can we can roll to the end. You know, what's this one is really bad, but um what's a dentist's favorite time? What's a dentist's favorite time? Quitting time? I don't know. Tooth hurty. <laughs> Tooth hurty. Tooth hurty. Got it. I warned you. Hey, none of them are really that great. So they're all good for a chuckle. Dr. Travis, as we, uh, as we wrap up here, could you plug the two names of your two books one more time and then the website one more time, just so people who want to reach out and get in touch with you know where to do so and anywhere else that is appropriate to find you, feel free to share that as well. Sure. Uh, first book was The Practice Whisperer. Second book is Understanding Dental Insurance. And the dynamic platform is dentalinsuranceguy.com. Very good. That is Dr. Travis Campbell, otherwise known as the dental insurance guy. Dr. Travis, thank you for sharing your, your expertise and for being a guest on Dentists, Puns, and Money. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to Dentists, Puns, and Money. For more information about my day job, which is guiding dentists to their financial off-ramp from active practice, you can visit DentistExit.com. And there, you can find more information about us, sign up for our email newsletter, or schedule a discovery call with Sean. And that's me. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, and also please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. As for the boring legal stuff, Dentist Exit Planning and Terrell Advisors, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. The information presented should not be interpreted or construed as investment, legal, tax, financial planning, or wealth management advice. It does not substitute for personalized investment or financial planning from Dentist Exit Planning or Terrell Advisors, LLC. This podcast conveys the views and opinions of Sean Terrell, and the information herein should not be considered a solicitation to engage in a particular investment or financial planning strategy. Information presented is for educational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results.